Good morning, everyone. Hope everybody had a good week. Let's get into it. Now, chapter six was very good. We'll do a quick review of chapter six and we'll jump right into chapter seven. So chapter six starts off with, uh, as usual, the newspapers of the yesterday are still the same as today. Very opinionated and full of and short on facts. That's just the way it is. They give uh, Gregson and Lestray full credit for solving the crime. As Sherlock Holmes predicted in his in the last chapter. <clears throat> so they're they're sitting there going over the newspapers and together, him and Watson. Then they hear a big ruckus outside of the entrance and the landlady got all wound it up over it. And uh, turns out it was Sherlock's Baker Street Detective Police Force. Baron knows a group of six kids who has their eyes in a street form. It's actually a very good idea. And it would be very interesting to see what these guys come up with. After that, a very hap happy, boastful Gregson, Tobias Gregson, pops into the scene and starts telling... Uh, Sherlock and Watson all about the case how we solved it and he was convinced that the uh, the murderer was a young sailor named Arthur Carpanche and the theory behind that he would kill Trevor because he was making advances towards his young sister and tried to take her out of the home and you know being very inappropriate so that was not good at all and they assumed that Arthur took it to his own hands to uh, carry out the the murder of Greber. During all this, Holmes is just sitting there yawning away and kind of bored to tears while Gregson was flapping his gums there, getting all boastful and happy and proud as a peacock, thinking he solved the case, drinking his water and whiskey and puffing on his big cigar there. And you know what the expression goes, speak of the devil is sure to appear, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, Tobias says, Brings up with Strait, commenting on the fact that he was on the wrong path with Stangerson. And sure enough, just as soon as he mentions his name, Stangerson or Lestrade pops in the room <clears throat> and immediately shuts down Tobias and basically taking the wind right out of his sails. Because he made the announcements that uh, Dreber's assistant, Joseph Stangerson, was found murdered at the Holiday Inn. At six o'clock this morning. And that's where we are, right there. So we're gonna dive into chapter seven and see what this where this all turns. It's getting very interesting. So but before I start, so we now we know that uh, with the announcement of the murder of Standerson to Tobias's theory just went went astray. So they got the young sitter locked up for nothing. And Lestrade's theories just went astray because he was accusing Stangerson of being the murder, murderer of the uh, Mr. Drebber. So now they're both back at Sherlock's mercy again. Chapter 7, Light in the Darkness. Oopsies. The intelligence with which Lestrade greeted us was so momentous and so unexpected that all three were fairly dumbfounded. 
We just cannot believe what we were hearing. Gregson sprang out of his chair and upset the remainder of his whiskey and water. I stared in silence at Sherlock Holmes, whose lips were compressed and his brows drawn over his eyes. Stangerson, too, he muttered. The plot thickens. That's quite thick enough before, grumbled Lestrade, taking a chair. I see I've dropped into a sort of council of war. In other words, war between, you know, like crime families or crime syndicates when they have their own wars going on. Are you, are you sure this piece of intelligence, stammered Gregson, who's in disbelief and kind of upset about the whole thing. I just came across from his room, said Lestrade. I was the first to discover what had occurred. We have been hearing Gregson's view of the matter, Holmes observed. Would you mind letting us know what you have seen and what you have done? I have no objection, Lestrade answered, seating himself. I fully confess that was the opinion that Stangerson was concerned in the death of Drebber. This fresh development has shown me that I was completely mistaken. Full of the one idea, I set myself to find out what had become of the secretary. They had been seen together at Euston Station about half past eight on the evening of the third. At two in the morning, Drebber had been found in Brixton Road, dead as a doornail. The question confronted me as to find out how Stangerson had been employed between 8.30 and the time of the crime, and what had become of him afterwards. I telegraphed Liverpool, giving a description of the man and warning them to keep watch upon the American boats. I then set to work calling upon all hotels and lodging houses in, in the vicinity of Houston. You see, I argued that if Drebber and his companion become separated, the natural course for the latter would be put somewhere in the vicinity of vicinity for the night and then hang about the station again till next morning so he's really on the, really on the assumption that uh, Stangerson was plotting to kill Drebber they would have likely to agree on some meeting place beforehand remarked Holmes so it proved I spent a whole of yesterday evening in making inquiries entirely without avail this morning I began very early, and at 8 o'clock I reached Halliday's private hotel in Little George Street. On my inquiry to whether Mr. Stangerson was living there, they answered at once to me in the affirmative. So there was a resounding yes. He found out where he was living. Or staying, we'll say. No doubt you're a gentleman he was expecting, they said. He's been waiting for a gentleman for two or three days now. For two days now. Where is he now, I asked. He is upstairs in bed. He wished to be called at nine. Kind of like the knocky-up thing, you know. It seemed to me that my sudden appearance might shake his nerves and lead him to say something unguarded. The Boots volunteered to show me in the room. It was on the second floor, and there was a small corridor leading up to it. The Boots pointed out the door to me and was about to go downstairs again when I saw something that made me feel sickish in spite of my 20 years' experience. So let me stop there for a second. When he says the boots, it's like the bellhop of the motel or the hotel. I guess back then they called them the boots. From under the door, there was a curl, a little red ribbon of blood, which meandered across the passage and formed a little pool along the skirting at the other side. I gave a cry, which brought the boots back. He nearly fainted when he saw it. The door was locked on the inside, but we put our shoulders to it and knocked it in. The window of the room was open, and beside the window, all huddled up, lay the body of a man in his nightdress. Nightdress. 
I'm assuming that's his pajamas. He was quite dead, and he had been for some time, for his limbs were rigid and cold, so rigor mortis is now setting in. When we turned over him over to the boots, recognized him at once as being the same gentleman who had engaged the room under the name of Joseph Standerson, which we all know is Greber's assistant, basically private secretary. The cause of death was a deep stab in the left side, and much have penetrated the heart. And now come the strangest part of the affair. What do you suppose was above the murdered man? So let me repeat that. Now, so Lestrade's telling the story here of what he found when he walked into the crime scene. And I'll just go back a little bit here. The cause of death was a deep stab in the left side, which must have penetrated the heart. And now comes the strangest part of the affair. So he's asking Sherlock Holmes and Watson and Tobias Gregson, what do you suppose was above the murdered man? I felt a creeping of flesh and a presentiment of coming horror. Even before Sherlock Holmes answered, the word rush, rush, written in letters of blood, he said. That was it, said Lestrade, an awestruck voice. They were all silent for a while. Holmes is probably thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is something so methodical and so incomprehensible about the deeds of this unknown assassin that it imparted a fresh ghastliness to his crimes. My nerves, which were steady enough on the field of battle, tingled as I thought of it. So even old Watson there was a strong fellow as he is from being in battle and see many things in war, still getting a little bit of a nervous tension about all this and just can't believe what he's seeing. So Holmes knew right away what was written on top of the body and blood. Let's keep that in mind for later on. The man was seen, continued Lestrade. A milk boy, passing on his way to the dairy, happened to walk down a lane which leads from the mews at the back of the hotel. He noticed that a ladder, which usually lay there, was raised up against one of the windows of the second floor, which was wide open. After passing, he looked back and saw a man descend the ladder. He came down so quickly and openly that the boy imagined him to be some carpenter or joiner or worker to, joiner at the work of the hotel. One of the hands at the hotel, one of the one of the employees, maybe. He took no further notice of him, beyond thinking in his own mind that it was early for him to be at work. He has an expression impression that the man was tall, had a reddish face, was dressed in a long brownish coat. Hmm, that sounds very, very familiar, doesn't it, folks? He has an impression that the man was tall, had a reddish face, florid, dressed in a long brownish coat, same guy that was held up at the uh, gate with uh, Sergeant Lance, Sergeant Rance, at the first uh, hint of the crime scene when they came back looking for that ring. He must have stayed in the room sometime little after the murder, for we found blood-stained water in the basin where he washed his hands and marks on the sheets where he had deliberately wiped his knife. Very, very interesting. I glanced at Holmes on hearing the description of the murderer, which tailed, tallied so exactly with his own. So they're kind of, 
Holmes has got his plan or his ideas how it's one's done, and as more details come in light, just seem to be on a level playing field here. I'll repeat that. I glanced at Holmes on hearing the description of the murderer, which tallied so exactly with his own. There was, however, no trace of exaltation or satisfaction upon his face. So Holmes has probably still got his brows, you know, brows down and still thinking deep in thought. And Did you find nothing in the room which could furnish a clue to the murderer, he asked. Nothing. Standerson had Gerber's purse in his pocket, but it seemed that was usual, as he did all the paying. He was a secretary, after all. There were 80 pounds in it, but nothing had been taken. Whatever the motives of these extraordinary crimes, robbery is not certainly one of them. There are no papers or memoranda in the murdered man's pockets except a single telegram dated from Cleveland about a month ago and contained the words, J.H. is in Europe. There is no name appended to the message. So there's a, me a letter in his... Uh, in, the, in the, his pockets, the secretaries from Cleveland saying J.H. is in Europe. There is no name appended to the message. So that's very interesting. So obviously, these, so obviously um, Standerson knows who J.H. is. And obviously, this, the letter was addressed to Standerson. So it's in his pocket. So he's involved somehow. Something is going on here. We're not quite sure yet. And there was nothing else, Holmes asked. Nothing of any importance. The man's novel, which he, which he had read himself to sleep, was lying upon the bed, and his pipe was on a chair beside him. There was a glass of water on the table, and on the windowsill, a small chip ointment box containing a couple of pills. Oh! Sherlock, Holmes sprang from his chair with an exclamation of delight. <clears throat> the last link, he cried exultantly. My case is complete. So he is just thrilled to death about this announcement of these pills. The two detectives stared at him in amazement. I now have in my hands, my companion said, confidently, all the threads which have formed such a tangle. There are, of course, details to be filled in, but I am certain as all the main facts. From the, the time that Deborah parted from Standerson at the station up to the discovery of the bottom of the ladder, as if I had seen them with my own eyes, I can give you proof of my knowledge. Can you lay your hand upon those pills? Well, I have them right here, said Lestrade, producing a small white box. I took them and the purse and the telegram, intending to have them put in place the safety of the police at the police station. So in other words, he's going to put them in evidence. It was the merest chance of my taking these pills, for I'm bound to say I do not attach any importance to them. So it was a fluke he took the evidence. <clears throat> and once again, we get to see how inept these two are. Kind of reminds me of the Keystone Cops. He has uh, clues in his hands. First rants lets the guy go. These guys get clues in their hands constantly and just think it's, man, nah, that's got nothing to do with it. And are constantly on the wrong path. All the more reason why Sherlock Holmes is constantly beating him to death. Get them here, said Holmes. Now, doctor, turning to me, are these ordinary pills? They certainly were not. They were of a purely gray color small, round, and most transparent against the light. From their lightness and transparency, I should imagine they are soluble in water, in water, I remarked. 
Precisely so. They are definitely soluble in water, answered Holmes. Now, would you mind going... Okay. Let me stop here. Now, this next, next part of the chapter here, which I did read ahead a little bit, but um, it's just how they did things back in the old days. So, to all of you who uh, might get a little sad here a little bit, it's just... I didn't write the book, so... I'm only reading what's written down in here, okay? So try not to get, get, get too sad on the next little bit that's coming up. It's a little sad. All right, here we go. Just giving you a warning. Precisely so, answered Holmes. Now, would you mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier which has been bad so long and which the landlady wanted you to put down of its pain yesterday? So there's an old dog sitting there, a terrier, and I guess he's on his last legs and a lot of pain. And she tried to get Watson to put him down the other day. And I guess he didn't want to do it. I went downstairs and carried the dog upstairs in my arms. Its labored breathing and glazing eyes showed that it must—it was not far from its end. Indeed, its snow-white muzzle proclaimed that it already exceeded the usual term of a canine existence. I placed it upon a cushion on the rug. When I first read this, I felt, oh, I went, oh. I don't know what it, it just gives you that, you know, sad feeling. I will now cut one of these pills in two, said Holmes, and drawing out his penknife, he suited the action to the word. One half we return to the box for future purposes. The other half I will place in this wine glass, in which is a teaspoonful of water. You perceive that our friend, the doctor, is right, that it will already dissolve instantly. This may be very interesting, said Lestrade in an injured tone of one who suspects that he's being laughed at. <clears throat> I cannot see, however, what has to do with the death of Mr. Joseph Stangerson. So, the, so once again, the two, uh, the two detectives there are just thinking, oh my God, what's next here with this guy? Patience, my friend, patience, said Sherlock Holmes. You'll find in time that this has everything to do with it. I shall now add a little milk to make the mixture more palatable. On the present and on presenting it, presenting it to the dog, and that we find it that he finally laps it up readily enough. So the dog just lapped it right up. Now you know, assume that Sherlock's assuming that the the worst here, right? As he spoke, he turned the contents of the wine glass into a saucer and placed it in front of the terrier, who speedily licked it dry. Sherlock's Holmes. Ernest Demeter had so far convinced all of us that he was, uh, we all sat in silence, watching the animal intently and expecting some startling effect. None appeared, however. The dog continued to lie upon the cushion, breathing in a labored way, but apparently neither the better nor the worse for its draft. So that part of the deal didn't go well. The dog survived. I have to admit, when I first seen that, I was kind of happy. Holmes had taken out his watch, and as the minute followed minute without result, an expression of the utmost chagrin and disappointment appeared on his features. He gnawed on his lip, drummed his fingers on the table, and showed every other symptom of acute impatience. So he is just baffled by what he's seen is going on here. He just doesn't understand. Something is not right. As they say, something is afoot. <laughs> So great was his emotion that I felt sincerely sorry for him, while the two detectives smiled decisively, by no means were displeased at this check which he had met. 
So the, the detectives are kind of happy he fell flat in his face. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you're at work or wherever else, or there's always one person that's, that never makes a mistake. And when he does, when they, when he or she doesn't make a mistake, it's like a damn celebration. Everybody's so happy. Yes, he's human after all. They are. They make mistakes just like everybody else. <laughs> so they were quite happy with uh, Holmes's gone wrong experiment with that poor little dog. It can't be a coincidence, he cried at last, springing from his chair and placing Wiley up and down the room. It isn't possible that it should be a mere coincidence. The very pills which I suspected in the case of Deborah were actually found after the death of Stangerson. Okay, remember that part when he first, first seen the body? What did he do? He knelt down over the body and, and uh, smelled the, uh, the lips, smelt the lips of the, uh, of Jebber. I'm assuming cyanide gives a, some sort of an odor, which I think it does. But yet they are very inert. What can it mean? Surely my whole chain of reasoning can't, cannot have been false. It is impossible. And yet this wretched dog is none for the worse. <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> I, I feel bad for that little dog. Oh, I have it, I have it, he says. With a perfect shriek of delight, he rushed to the box, cut the other pill in two, dissolved it, added the milk, and presented it to the terrier yet again. The unfortunate creature's tongue seemed hardly to have been moistened in it before it gave a convulsive sugar, shiver in every limb and lay as rigid and lifeless as it had been struck by lightning. So, the poor dog died. I'm sorry, everybody. So Sherlock Holmes proved, I'm assuming, that the second pill was a cyanide pill. Sherlock Holmes drew a long breath and wiped his perspiration from his forehead. I should have more faith, he said. I ought to know by this time that when a fact appears to be opposed to a long train of deductions, it invariably proves to be capable of bearing some other interpretation. Kind of like the Occam's razor theory. It may be as simple as it is, but sometimes the, simple, the most simplest explanation is the truth. One of these two pills in the box was one of the most deadly... Let me start over there. Sorry, folks. One of the pills in that box, one was the most deadly poison, and the other was entirely harmless, like a placebo. I had to have known that before I ever saw the box at all. So this, okay, right here, I don't quite understand why there would be one placebo... And so what, and because the, the pills all look the same. So there's a little bit of fuzzy math right there. How would the, uh, how would the murderer know, or how would, like they're found at the scene. So a little, little confusing there. Hopefully we can get back to that. It shows up later on. We can just clear up some of that. This last statement appeared to me so startling that I could hardly believe that it was even in sober senses. There was the dead dog. However, to prove that his conjecture had been correct, it seemed to me that the mists in my mind were gradually clearing away. The mists. In other words, his brain fog was starting to clear away. I began to have a dim, vague perception of the truth. All this seems so strange to you, continued Holmes. I guess he was looking over at the three fellows. Because you failed at the beginning of the inquiry to grasp the importance of a single clue which was presented to you. 
I had the good fortune to seize upon that, and everything which has occurred since then has served to confirm my original supposition. And, indeed, was a logical sequence of it. Hence, things which have perplexed you and made the case more obscure have served to enlighten me and to strengthen my conclusions. It is a mistake to confound strangeness with, strangeness with mystery. So I guess what he's telling these guys here is that, when I, like I said earlier, when I went back to the, uh, when they first found the river's body, where Sherlock Holmes knelt down and smelt his, smelt his lips, because I'm pretty sure he could smell the uh, cyanide. And that's what he's telling these guys. Because he didn't tell them about that when he, when he first, uh, only Dr. Watson made the comment that he was, actually did that. So we did know he did that. He was smelling something on the body. And that's probably what it was. Let's continue. The most commonplace crime is often the most mysterious because it, prints, it presents no new or special features from which deductions may be drawn. This murder would have been infinitely more difficult to unravel had the body of the victim been simply found laying in the roadway without any of those outrageous and sensational accompaniments which I have rendered it remarkable. These strange details, far from making the case more difficult, have really had the effect of making it less so. So the more details he had, the easier it got for him. Mr. Gregson, Tobias, who had listened to this address with considerable patience, can no longer contain himself and keep his yap shut. Look here, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, he said. We're already to acknowledge you're a smart man and that you have your own methods of working. We want something more than theory and preaching now. It is a case of taking the man. I have made my case out, and that seems wrong. I was wrong. So he arrested young Carpentier, and now he's realizing that he made a mistake. Young Carpentier could not have engaged in the second affair. Lestrade went after this man, Stangerson, and it appears that he was wrong too. You have thrown our hints here out here and there and seem to know more than we do. But the time has come when we feel you, we have a right to ask you straight up. How much do you know of this whole thing, of this whole affair? Can you put a name to the man who did it? I cannot help feeling that Gregson is right here, sir, remarked Lestrade meekly. We have both tried and we have both failed. You have remarked more than once since I have been in the room that you have, have all the evidence which you require. Surely you cannot withhold any of this any longer. So the two detectives are finally going, okay, okay, you win, you win, man. Spill the beans here. Tell us what you know. Any delay in arresting this assassin, I observe, might give him time to perpetuate some fresh atrocity. That was what uh, Watson just piped in. Thus pressed by all, us all, Holmes showed signs of irresolution. He continued to walk him down the room with his head sunk on his chest and his brows drawn down, as, it was, as was his habit when he was lost in thought. So he was just thinking very, very carefully here. And then he pipes in. There will be no more murders, he said at last, stopping abruptly and facing the three of us. You can put the consideration, that consideration right out of the question. You have asked me if I know the name of the assassin. I do know the name. The mere knowing of his name is a small thing, however, compared with the power of laying our hands upon him. This I expect very shortly to do. I have good hopes of managing it through my own arrangements. 
but is a thing which needs delicate handling. For we have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with, who is supported, as I had an occasion to prove, by another who's clever as himself. So, that tells us what right there. That whoever Holmes has in mind, the name of the fellow who is committing the crimes, is working for someone else. Kind of like a hitman. Because as he says here, as I have had an occasion to prove by another who is clever as himself. So he's he's supported by someone else just as clever as, as the assassin is. So there is more going on here than meets the eye. <clears throat> as long as this man has no idea that anyone can have a clue. And just, oh, I want to tell you guys something just so you know. The word clue, they spell it C-L-E-W. That must have been the English, uh, proper English back then in, in uh, England. As we know, we spell C-L-U-E. I thought that was kind of curious. So I'd share that with you. Okay, sorry. As long as this man has no idea that anyone can have a clue, there is some chance of securing him. But if he had the slightest suspicion, he would change his name and vanish in an instant among the four million inhabitants of this great city. So Sherlock is very reluctant in telling him his name because he can't afford to take a chance of this guy finding out that they're onto him. Because he would just disappear into the city. Without meaning to hurt your out of your feelings, I am bound to say that I consider these men to be more than a match for the official, the official force. And that is why I've asked you, I have not asked for your assistance. So in other words, he's saying you guys are weighing over your head. And you got no idea what you're dealing with. This is why I didn't bother to ask for your help. If I fail, I shall, of course, incur all the blame due to this admission, but that I am prepared for. At present, I'm ready to promise that the instant I can communicate with you without endangering my own combinations, I shall do so. So basically, he's saying, if I am wrong, I will admit my defeat and apologize profusely to you guys. But in the meantime... I can't afford to tell you anything more because it's going to interfere with the uh, everything he has into place. Gregson and Lestrade seem to be far from satisfied by this assurance, so they're not buying it for one second, or by the depreciating illusion to the detective police. The former had flushed up the roots of his flaxen hair. That's that's Tobias, while the other's beady eyes glistened with curiosity and rent. Resentment. That's the little rat faced fellow that strayed. Neither of them had a time to speak, however, before there was a tap at the door and a spokesman of the street Arab's young Wiggins introduced his insignificant and unsavory person. <laughs> I still get a kick out of that. Wonder why they call them Arabs back then. I gotta find that out, let you guys know. Let's <laughs> find that funny. You know, it's funny reading all these books from back then. You get to see how uh, how things in our vernacular today, how it's all stemmed from back in the 1800s. We still use a lot of the same stuff they used back then. But it's progressed in a different way, though. Very, very cool. Okay, sorry, where was I? <laughs> I got to stop doing that to you guys. Okay, uh, I'll just go back just a little bit. None of them had the time to speak. However, before... Before there was a tap at the door, 
and the spokesman of the Street of the Arabs, Young Wiggins, introduced this insignificant and unsavory person. <laughs> Please, sir, he said, touching his forehead, I have the cab downstairs. Good boy, said Holmes, blandly. Why don't you introduce this pattern at Scotland Yard, he continued, taking a pair of steel handcuffs from a drawer. Okay, now I did some research on that word pattern there. They use the word pattern to signify that there's, um, like here it's handcuffs. So pattern is that certain style that they're, they're currently using. So I guess Sherlock has his own pattern of handcuffs, and they call it pattern as in that, that uh, brand and so that's what he means by that so we'll just change that word to this brand so good boy said Holmes blandly why don't you introduce this pattern we'll say brand a Scotland Yard Scotland Yard he continued taking a pair of steel handcuffs from a drawer see how beautiful the spring works they fasten in an instant ah the old pattern is good enough remarked Lestrade if we can find a man to put him on very good, very good, said Holmes, smiling. The cabman may as well help me with my boxes. Just ask him to step up, Wiggins. Let me just stop there. There's a picture here next to the, this uh, last uh, page here. And it shows the four of them. Tobias is sitting down in his chair. Lestrade has his foot up on a chair. And Watson and Holmes. And Holmes looking down at the poor dog. There's a little plate in front of the dog. And... And obviously the dog died. But I guess the good thing, we put him out of his misery. So, anyways, moving on. I was surprised he to find my companion speaking as though we were about to set on a journey, since he had not said anything to me about it. There was a small trunk in the room, and this he pulled out and began to strap it. He, he was busily engaged at it when the cabin entered the room. Okay, so... Remember, he just had Wiggins go down and tell the cabbie to come upstairs. Just give me help with this buckle, cabman, he said, kneeling over his task and then returning his head. The fellow came forward with a somewhat sullen, defiant air and put his hands down to assist. At that instant, there was a sharp click, the jangling of metal, and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet again. Gentlemen, he cried, with flashing in his eyes. Let me introduce you to Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Greber. And Joseph Sanderson, let's just stop right there. Now, let's go back. Mr. Jefferson Hope, J.H. And as you remember, um, when he found that note in uh, Sanderson's pocket, oh, here it is, uh, a couple pages back, there were no papers or memoranda in the murdered man's pockets except a single telegram dated from Cleveland about a month ago. Containing the words, J.H. is in Europe. There was no name appended to the message. Now we go ahead, fast forward. I'll read this again. Just give me help with this buckle, cabman, he said, kneeling over his task and never turning his head. The fellow came forward with a somewhat sullen, defiant air, put his hands to his fist. At that instant, there was a sharp click and jangling of metal, and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet. Gentlemen, he cried with flashing eyes. Let me introduce you to Mr. Jefferson Hope, murderer of Enoch Weber and Joseph Stangerson. So there it is, folks. There's the connection. The whole thing occurred in a moment so quickly that I had time, no time to realize it. I had a vivid recollection of that instant of Holmes 
triumph expression in the ring of his voice and the captain's dazed, savage face as he glared at the glittering handcuffs, which had peered uh, as if by magic upon his own wrists. For a second or two, he might have been a group of statues. Then, with an inarticulate roar of fury, the prisoner wrenched for himself free from Holmes's grasp, hurled himself through the window. Woodwork and glass gave way before him, but before he got quite through, Gregson, Lestrange, and Holmes sprang upon him like so many staghounds. He was dragged back into the room and then commenced a terrible conflict. So they had him down and the fight began. So powerful and so forced was he that the four of us were shaken off again and again. He appeared to be a, have the convulsive strength of a man and an epileptic fit. So basically, the guy's cornered and he's going all out. He's fighting for his life, basically. His face and hands were so terribly mangled by the passage through the glass, but the loss of blood had no effect on diminishing his resistance. It was not till his straight succeeded in getting his hand inside the neckcloth and half strangling him that we made him realize that his struggles were to no avail. And he, even then we felt no security until we had pinioned his feet as well as his hands. That dummy rose to her feet, breathless and panting. We have his cab, said Sherlock Holmes. It will serve him to take him to Scotland Yard. So they're going to drive him over to the Scotland Yard to the prison in his own cab. And now, gentlemen, he continued with a pleasant smile. We have reached the end of our little mystery. You are very welcome for any questions you might, you might have to me now. And there is no danger that I will refuse to answer them. That's the end of the chapter. Wow. That was good. So we come away knowing a couple things. One, they found the murderer who commit who killed Drebber and his assistant or secretary Steinerson. Two, which is very important to note, as we see back here, and I'll read that part again. I have hopes of managing it through my own arrangements, but it is a thing which needs delicate handling, for we have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with. And here is the clinch, who is supported, as I've had an occasion to prove, by another who is covered for himself. I wonder if this guy here was the, uh, no, he would know. Uh, he wasn't the old lady in disguise because he would recognize his red face. So they have the, uh, we're going to call him the hitman. That's the sec second thing. And he's on his way to Scotland Yard. They got the cab. Probably the cab that drove the two of them to the uh, crime scene in the first place. All right. Chapter 7 was very interesting. All right, folks. That's it. Hope you have a great week. And next week, next Sunday, I'll give you a review of Chapter 7. And we'll delve right into chapter 8. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, by the way, um, please share the podcast if you can. I'm starting to really get uh, get a lot of joy out of this. And uh, yeah, don't be shy. Spread it around. And as I said before, any of you who are listening and don't think I'm doing a very good job, well, be patient. Be patient. You know, We're getting there. And... Um, 
I'm working on websites to try to get this thing more user friendly for everybody. Because uh, I'm sure not everybody has uh, the app Spotify. So I'm trying to find a, find a better way to deliver the uh, the readings to you. Which I'll keep you posted on as we go along. All right. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Bye for now.